Welcome to the Sunday Sermon Podcast of First United Methodist Church in Opelika. We'd love for you to join us for worship each Sunday at 9 o'clock or 10.30 a.m. To learn more about First United Methodist, visit us online at fumcopelika.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook at fumcopelika. Thanks for tuning in. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Luke. If you have uh, your Bible with you this morning, I want to invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 4. If you don't have your Bible with you, I want to invite you to get your phone or tablet out, uh, Google Luke chapter 4, grab a pew Bible off the hymnal shelf in front of you and turn there so that you can have a copy of the scriptures before you. I'm going to be reading Luke 4 verses 1 through 13. And out of reverence for the Lord and for his word, I'm going to invite you to stand with me as we listen now together. For the word of the Lord. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from him until an opportune time. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Pray with me, please. Come Holy Spirit. Speak to our hearts, open our minds, work in our lives. Come Holy Spirit and let us rest in you. Because what you do and how you work and who you are is enough. Come Holy Spirit and fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who withstands all temptation. That we might walk in his ways and be transformed more and more into his likeness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The first year that Susanna and I were married, I was in school working on my doctorate. For that one year of coursework, Susanna was doing an odd collection of different jobs, kind of waiting until we finished that one year of residency and move to where we would be for the foreseeable future before getting a more permanent job. 
that first year of our married life, inevitably, inevitably, when we would spend time with other people, one of the common conversation topics was what type of work Susanna wanted to do whenever we would settle where we were going to go. Uh, there was one couple particularly that we loved to hang out with, spent a lot of time with, where the wife was particularly insistent on trying to come up with the best possible career field for Susanna. She would try and think of all these various passions that Susanna had and then combine it with her own kind of entrepreneurial flair that she had. And she would just sit there and rattle off ideas about all the things that Susanna could do when she got a job. You could start a casserole company that made frozen casseroles and you could deliver them to people right as they come home from work. You could help high school students uh, work on their admissions essays and scholarship essays so that when they're applying for school, they would have someone with an English background to get them into school. You could teach poetry classes for children. Yeah, that sounds like fun. <laughs> on and on she would go. We used to laugh at the ways that Tiffany would play God. We said, yo, you know Tiffany, she loves you and she has a wonderful plan for your life. And while she was innovative and full of good ideas, it is easier to play God in our lives than you and I might think. Of course, there are all kind of ways that people think about playing God in their life today, from places in literature like we see in stories like Frankenstein to science and theology. We see lots of different places where the question is raised about how much power we have, how much authority we have, and when and how we should use them properly. Theologian Paul Ramsey said, humans ought not play God before they learn to be human. And after they've learned to be human, they will not play God. For you and me, it may be a harder line to see. When and how should we step into what God is doing? What is our role? How do we know when and where to act? How can we know that we're actually staying within the boundaries of God being God and us being surrendered and subordinate humans? As we turn our attention back to this text in Luke chapter 4 for the last time in this series, we begin to see a temptation we all face, and we see how Jesus withstands it. For three weeks now, we've been looking at this text and thinking about temptation. In it, we find Jesus emerging onto the stage of public ministry, and it's kind of a prelude that sets him off into the ministry of redemption and rescue and deliverance. And as he is preparing the way, as he is stepping out into public, as he is doing the very first things that we ever see him do on the public stage, he has an encounter with the tempter. The encounter serves kind of as a validation of all that we have heard Jesus would be. All through the beginning chapters of Luke, what we see is that Jesus is announced as who he's, as he will be. He is, we are told that he is the one who will save the people from their sins. That he is the Son of God. That he is the promised one that God had promised to one day send. As we understand the magnitude of who he's promised to be, and as we see him beginning to step out into ministry, this confrontation with the devil helps us know that all these things we've heard about him are accurate, that he can be trusted. That as we go on reading in Luke's gospel, as we see what it is he does, that in the back of our minds, we can continue to hold in our mind that he is the one who always withstands temptation. That he is the one, even in this first encounter, defeats the devil. That he is the one who we can rest in. That all that has been said about him is accurate and true and trustworthy. And just like for you and me, 
temptation happens for Jesus in the wilderness, or at least in wilderness-type environments in our lives, just like for you and me, temptation happens at our weakness. We're the most susceptible to giving in to our short-term urges, bowing down to our feelings and whims, and serving our bodies and bellies when we are hungry, when we are angry, when we're lonely, when we're tired. When we find Jesus in this text, he is at least hungry. The Bible makes that very clear. There's a good chance that he's lonely and tired, too. For 40 days, we see that the devil has tempted him while he's been alone. But these three scenarios that we've looked at over these last few weeks, they're like the summary of all that the days have had. And they're positioned right here at the end so that we can see clearly who Jesus is. And what it looks like for him to stand up to temptation. First, we saw that Jesus was tempted by the devil to turn stones into sourdough. See, I was listening last week. In truth, it was far more than just about the bread. The devil was working to get Jesus in that first temptation to doubt that God was holding up his end of the bargain. God had declared that Jesus was his beloved son. But in a moment of weakness and hunger, the devil wants Jesus to assume that God is asleep at the wheel and needs him to step in and take care of this urge that he has. This temptation, we said two weeks ago, is the temptation of cultural Christianity. Uh, This is the temptation that is all about giving lip service to God about how he loves us and takes care of us and how we trust him completely. But then we take over and really just live within our own means and meet our own needs. In this temptation, there is no room for miracles or for the work of God in our lives because essentially we say one thing, but then we live a completely different way of living. While you and I struggle with this in ways that we can't even perceive, Jesus doesn't even bat an eye. The Son of God does not give in to temptation here or anywhere. He immediately responds and says that trusting God and truly living into God's promises are far more sustaining and nourishing than a quick whim to silence the hunger pangs in our stomach. Last week, Patrick helped us look at round two. There, the devil is tempting Jesus to sabotage the means for the end. He offers the quick fix, plan A, to ultimately bring about an outcome that Jesus wanted. But for Jesus to give in to the devil's shortcut would mean that he would have to sacrifice his faithfulness to God and to God's way. Jesus chose plan B. God's vision is clear that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. But it will come through Jesus doing what the Father wants and not taking shortcuts to God's preferred future. Just like with the first temptation, we can see ourselves wanting to justify our means. If we can rationalize that it brings about a worthy end. And just like with the first temptation, Jesus doesn't even flinch. He rebuffs the devil, and that leads us to round three. This final temptation that we look at in this text, it's like the final exam. It's a cumulative test that in many ways combines everything that we've seen in the first two temptations into one grand final challenge for Jesus. The devil takes Jesus to the highest point on the temple, right in the heart 
of Jerusalem. This location would have been the very heart of the life of the people of Israel. This was a cultural, religious, social, and societal center. And on top of that, it was a lot like Grand Central Station. There would have been people and busyness and activity flowing all over the place. The devil knows that Jesus has been relying on Scripture to hear the voice of God and to respond to the temptations. So now, the devil tries to impersonate God's voice. He challenges Jesus to throw himself off this high point of the temple because God's word says that he will send angels to him and will care for him. Essentially, the devil is hoping to get Jesus to actively engage in not trusting what God has done and how God is working. He wants Jesus to question whether God has done or is doing enough. He wants Jesus to question whether God has done or is doing enough. For three chapters in the book of Luke, God has been on the move. If you were here all the way back to Christmas Eve, then we've slowly been looking at some of those places to see it. Now, it, the way that God has been on the move isn't the most expected or popular or flashy ways, but it's clear if you read the first three chapters of Luke that God is at work. God's been showing up on the margins, engaging the most unexpected and forgotten people and slowly advancing his mission. He came to a peasant girl and promised a miraculous birth. He announced that birth not to the Hollywood elite or media empires, but to lowly shepherds. And he gave his confirmation and baptism to his son amid a ragtag group following John to the Jordan River to repent. When the devil gets in Jesus' ear this time, he's trying to get Jesus to deviate from what God was doing and how God was doing it. The devil is looking at Jesus and at what God has done, and he's saying, this is no way to bring about a Messiah. This slow, unfolding, backward story isn't enough. God should be doing more. There's got to be a more efficient and more effective way. He wants Jesus to make a spectacle, to attract a crowd, and to get some good press. Just do it, he says. He'll take care of you. Advance the plan. Get it moving. Essentially, the tempter wants Jesus to take on working the same way that he does. He wants Jesus to begin putting conditions on God and to test him to see if he'll meet his demands. He wants him to play God. We all want to do that. The devil quotes Psalm 91 as his method for trying to get Jesus to give in to a short-term urge that will compromise the long-term goal. Immediately we see, though, that just because someone uses words from the Bible it doesn't mean that they're aligned with God's will. I probably should say that again. Just because someone uses words from the Bible doesn't mean that they're aligned with God's will. That Google a good verse to put in vinyl over the breakfast area doesn't guarantee that we're submitted and surrendered to the way of God. 
Psalm 91 is a psalm that stresses the scope of God's care and attention for those who are single-mindedly faithful to God. The devil wants it to be about God protecting you if you try to fly. It isn't. You and I know this temptation. Maybe not in this format or in this kind of scenario. And maybe not the whole Messiah part. Although we often do think that we are the Savior, the Chosen One, in situations in which we find ourselves. What we know, though, is about wondering whether or not God is working. Whether His methods are right. Or how we might nudge the plan forward to meet our timeline and our comfort Walter Liefeld says this, this request for a sign would actually be an act of unbelief masquerading as a sign of extraordinary faith. For Jesus to jump off the pinnacle of the temple would have been to publicly declare that he didn't trust the way that God was working and moving with regard to his life. While it might have looked like a big act of faith, it actually would have been unbelief that drove him to do it. Anytime we want to nudge God along, anytime we take over for God, it's a sign of unbelief. And God doesn't work like that no matter how many times we try. Jesus, like before, sees right through it. He doesn't waver And he rebukes the tempter one final time. It is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Jesus looks at the devil and says, God doesn't have to prove himself to me. I trust him. I trust what he is doing. Period. End of story. You and I live with this temptation all the time. We live in this tension. We want to believe that God is working. Oftentimes, we do believe that God is working. We know it. We see it. We experience it. But then at some point, we find ourselves in our wilderness when we're hungry, angry, tired, or lonely. And we're tempted, just like Jesus was, that God isn't doing enough. God isn't working, or the way he is working doesn't match our expectations or our timeline. We may or may not reach the point of testing God like the devil tries to get Jesus to do. We may not specifically say, God, you better do this or else, although we may. We pray, we give something to God, and then we just pick it right back up again. We want God to work, but when he doesn't do what we want on the timeline, we've decided We give up that he's doing something and we take over. We set an expectation or picture in our mind of how God should work and then we hold God hostage to work according to our agenda, our timeline, and our plan. God doesn't work that way. We can keep trying, but he never will. God is big. God is far bigger than you and I can fathom. And God loves you. He knows you. He knows you perfectly. 
He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you're facing. And he isn't surprised or unaware. God promises to never leave you or forsake you. And he longs to give you rest. We don't have to wrestle with him, anguish with him, or force him. When we're submitted to him and surrendered to him, he longs to take good care of you and of me. So how do we navigate the places in our lives where we're tempted to try and force God's hand? How do we navigate the places in our lives where we're tempted to say, God, what you're doing isn't enough. The way you're showing up, the way you're moving, the way you're working, it doesn't fit with my timeline and my plan. How do we navigate the places where we wonder if God is moving at a speed that will actually make a difference? I think there's a couple ways we do this. And the first is the base level of it all. The first thing that we have to do is really just remember that there is only one job requirement or one expectation that you or I have in this whole relationship with God thing at all. And that is to trust. That is to believe. That's really all we're called to do. This is the way that you and I are saved, is that we believe that Christ's righteousness takes the place for us and gives us a righteousness that we could not earn on our own. This is the way we know the Spirit at work within us, is that as we trust and believe the work of Jesus, that he fills his presence into our heart. This is how we engage with what God is doing, that we trust his action and his movement and his work. And so at the very base, the only thing we're ever called to do is to trust and believe in him. He may give us specific assignments or things to do, but at the base, trusting him is step one. The second thing that you and I are called to do, or or that we can do to, to face these situations, is that we can ask God for all the clarification and help that we want. We can tell God everything we think. We can complain to him when it doesn't work the way we want. We can ask him to do something different. We can pour our hearts out to him. And we should. God longs for us to spend time with him, to tell him all the things that are going on, to tell him what we think, to tell him what we wish he would do. And we know that God hears our prayers and that sometimes God responds and things change and sometimes they may or may not. But when they don't, we go back to step one, that our only job is to trust and to believe. God longs for us to share the very depths of who we are, to ask him why he does what he does, and to ask him to move according to the way we wish. The third thing that we can do is that we can engage in every possible means to participate with what God is doing. That's really what prayer is, is it connects us and aligns us to God's work. That's how transformation works. We don't transform our own hearts. We don't change our own lives, but we participate in the things that will bring about the transformation God longs to give into our lives. And so we pray, and so we read scripture, and so we serve, and so we give. So we forgive and practice the things that God calls us to, not because we force God's hand, But because when we participate in those things, God does things that we can't explain. 
At the end of the day, though, it comes back to the last thing that we just have to surrender to him. I think if you want to see this perfectly, you can fast forward to the end of the book of Luke to see a great picture. The last verse of our text says the devil left Jesus until an opportune time. Many commentators believe that that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That the devil once again shows up to tempt Jesus one final time. In the garden, we see Jesus doing the things that I just said. Trusting. Pouring out his heart, saying, Lord, if there is another way, would you take this cup from me? Praying, engaging, seeking to experience what God is doing. But at the end of the day, surrendering. Not my will, but yours be done. Jesus resists the temptation that would derail God's plans and work. At the end of the day, it comes down to trust. God loves you. And he wants the very best for you. And you can trust that he'll bring about more than you could ever bring about for yourselves. Over these last few weeks, we've learned and seen that temptations are about validating that Jesus is a worthy son of God. These temptations help us know that we have one who is worth being trusted, that he is the agent of God to go about the mission of God. That he is the one who alone always defeats the devil. But these temptations, they also show us a really clear picture of what it looks like for us to stay within the boundaries of a right relationship with God. Not taking over for God, not shortcutting the means for the end, and not playing God in our own lives. Temptations don't have to destroy us. They can build us up. And as we seek to follow in the way of the one who always resists temptation, that is his hope for you and for me. Pray with me, please. Good Father, we give you thanks for your faithfulness and your goodness. Lord, we give you thanks for your love and your work in our midst. Lord, we give you thanks for your trustworthiness, for your faithfulness through the ages, and for the fact that you keep your promises. Lord, thank you for Jesus, who withstands all temptation, who is the Son of God that takes away the sin of the world. Lord, send his spirit into our hearts that we might grow, that we might resist the temptations around us, and that we might know the very best that you have for us all. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.